All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter number 12. John chapter number 12. It's great to see everybody here this morning. And uh, if you're like me, it doesn't take but just one week out of a series uh, for my thick head to need a little bit of a reminder of, of where we're at and where we're going, what we're doing. So just a reminder, we're in the Gospel of John, if you haven't forgot, right? Starting chapter 12, and uh, we're making our way through it. And uh, we are transitioning uh, to a, an official section of Scripture that really the tides have turned, and uh, Christ, His hour has come, and we are on the threshold here of the Passover and Christ making his way into Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. And so this is where we're at in our series this morning. I've entitled the message, A Tale of Two Responses, in John chapter 12, again, verses 1 through 11. So chapters 11 through 20, just by way of context, they, again, are going to form this final section of John's account as it records kind of in a bookend fashion uh, these two resurrection accounts, right? We just have learned about the resurrection of Lazarus and all that went into that situation and those circumstances, uh, how Christ came through and his uh, uh, perceived failure of being late. He, he comes and he raises Lazarus from the dead and then Obviously, this book is going to end with the resurrection of Jesus. And everything in between there is really just going to layer in a lot of context about how people are responding, different dynamics of the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, individuals' responses and the lack thereof to Christ and his ministry and ultimately his Messiahship as represented in John's account. And so... We're really going to see two themes as we carry ourselves again through the remainder of the Gospel of John. The first theme is going to be this. We will see this twisted, wicked, even perverted and undeserving plot to kill Jesus. Right? There's really nothing that Jesus has done to deserve this label of rebellion, this, uh, this attack against his character and his person, uh, their desire to really snuff out this uh, this person, ultimately the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he hasn't deserved that, but ultimately we're going to see the true depravity of mankind exposed in very unique and dark ways. And I don't know about you, but as I've worked my way in the past through different Gospels and we get to these accounts of, you know, the times where we're going to see the crowd yelling, crucify him, crucify him, as we're going to see uh, the ones that Jesus has ministered to over these years of his life, they're going to turn on him and ultimately nail him to a cross. And I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to kind of point the finger at these crowds and just kind of cast this, this sense of judgment at them, like, how could you, right? Like, wow, seriously, if I was there, I, I would somehow have a different response, right? But I hope that in those moments that we see the depravity of man exposed in the remainder of John's gospel, that we'll take a moment to kind of pause and let that sink in because that's, that's us there, right? Um, that's our depravity. That's our sin that ultimately was yelling, crucify him, crucify him. It is our uh, pride and our arrogance that is nailing him to the cross. And so I hope that as we see this theme of the depravity of mankind show itself and exposed in unique ways that will uh, take a pause and relate to that ugliness 
of that sin. Because it's in that moment, I think we really learn something about ourselves. But not only will we see the depravity of mankind, we'll also see John articulate what exactly Jesus' death will accomplish on behalf of those who by God's grace will recognize and respond to Jesus rightly as Savior and Lord. For those, they are promised what? Life, right? Remember that? This is what they are promised. They are promised life. If you'll remember with me, the purpose of John's book, again, if you're like me, lest I soon forget, uh, we see this in John uh, 20, 31, right? But these are written, wise so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Remember with me also that Jesus has just made his fifth of seven I am statements in John 11, the previous chapter, verses 25 and 26. Speaking to Martha, he says, I am the resurrection and the what? The life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He asked her, do you believe this? Remember also John 10, 10, the thief comes only to still kill and destroy, but I came that you may have life and have it, what, abundantly. So we're going to see these purposes of Jesus' death. We're going to see what his death accomplishes in these remaining chapters of John's gospel. So this, in a nutshell, will be the truth, the context. It will be the foundation for the remainder of John's account. So that's uh, my attempt at catching us up here this morning. So as we continue our way through chapter 12 and consider once again the ministry, the life, and this recent miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, we are reminded in sobering fashion that Jesus has come on a mission. Right? Have we remembered that? Jesus has not come for popularity. He has not come to make his stake as one of the greatest men to ever live in history, a great historical figure. Jesus has come on a mission to die, to go to the cross, and to shed his blood. This is why he has come. And so, although the story seems to pay, take a, a bad turn for the worse for Jesus... His popularity is no longer popular. His miracles are soon forgotten. And the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the authorities of the day have now put what? They put a warrant out for his arrest. And these are the dynamics that Christ finds himself here in chapter number 12. This mission that Christ has come to fulfill, it doesn't end in the predictable storybook definition of a conquering hero delivering an oppressed nation from the hands of the Romans. But again, as a reminder, it's going to end in the apparent failure of a disappointing up-and-comer that just never lived up to his potential. Right? I, I say that phrase in jest, right? Knowing that for us that believe, we know that there is no failure in the life of Christ. His death. And the victory that death seemingly had was short-lived because we know we just celebrated on Easter an empty tomb. He is risen, defeating sin, death, and hell. And that same resurrection power that was exemplified not only raising Lazarus from the dead, but the power that rose Jesus from the dead is now ours through Christ. 
how we can live this Christian life in victory. So Jesus' death, his life, it's much more than failure. It is victory. Jesus is more than just this good teacher that others would make him out to be. Jesus is more than just this good example that often people will cast onto the name of Jesus, taken away from his deity. He is more than just a wise rabbi. Jesus is more than all these things. Why? Because he's on a mission. But as we follow John's account of Jesus' death, and as we observe all the circumstances, all the tensions, all the events that are surround this setting, we'll see through chapter 12 and beyond that the narrative continues on confidently toward this Passover, toward Jerusalem, and ultimately toward the cross. It is here at the cross, the death of Jesus, the shedding of his blood, that this divine paradox will come to full fruition. What do I mean by that? I mean this, where death means actually life and where defeat will actually secure a victory. This is the divine paradox that John will continue to unfold through the remaining portions of this gospel. We will begin to clearly see that the life that Jesus promised in chapters 10 and 11 can only be achieved through the death that is foreshadowed in chapter 12. So what's the big idea of our text in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 12? It's this. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he is that, amen? Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. His life and his ministry have immeasurable value and worth. And as such, he alone is worthy of our greatest and most lavish affections. Right, let me say that one more time just so we can wrap our head around this big idea of John 12 verses 1 through 11. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, his life and ministry have a measurable value and worth. And as such, he alone is worthy of our greatest and most lavish affections. Let's read our text this morning, verses 1 through 11 of John chapter 12. We'll open in prayer and allow John to simply take us through this account as we Continuing our work away through this gospel. Follow with me as I read verse 1, chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came 
not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to just quiet our hearts and our minds to take a moment out of the busyness and the rat race of life to set aside this sacred time to uh, make your word a priority in our life, to hear it and by your grace respond to it rightly with humility of heart and mind. Father, I pray this morning as we see uh, Mary, as we see Martha, as we see the response contrasted by Judas, I pray that you would help us to not be Judas. By your grace that you would draw us into a response of affection and worship, realizing that you, uh, Christ, have the most immeasurable value and worth. And as a result, Father, we, on a daily basis, moment by moment, should be living in light of that reality of who you are and what you've done for us through Jesus, the gospel. And so this morning, I, I pray, Father, that you would send your spirit to do a work that I cannot do, that we can't muster up by ourselves, that your spirit would work in our midst, in our own individual hearts, and even corporately together to change us, to be more like Christ. And as a result, Father, we would be changed to let our light shine as we leave this place, to be emboldened, to be that true follower of you, that one that truly denies himself and takes up their cross to follow you daily. Father, we need you. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. We are struck still with um, the, the clinging of, of sin in our flesh to our hearts. And so, Father, we need your strength um, to live for you and, and to respond in obedience to your word. Father, we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. So again, here we are at the end of chapter 11, verse 57. Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Right? The, the warrant is out on Jesus. And as we approach this third Passover account that John records, we see Jesus fully embracing the mounting tensions. What do I mean by that, fully embracing it? We've seen Jesus interact differently during these Passover times in chapters past. If you'll remember in chapter 7, it reads this, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Jesus says to his brothers, you go up to the feast. I am not going to this feast for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now we see what Jesus is fully aware of this active plot against his life. He is fully aware of this warrant for his arrest. And what do we see Jesus doing? Instead of retreating away or withdrawing, away from the crowd and avoiding the crowds, avoiding the Passover, what does he do? See, Jesus 
In verse 1, therefore came to Bethany. All right, we see that verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Before we dive into the meat of our text, I want to take that statement and break it down a little bit for us. I want to focus in on one word, this word, therefore. Significant. It reveals Christ's motive. It reveals his heart. It reveals his intentions. And that one word, therefore. This word literally means what? For that reason or consequently. It can also mean on account of or because. Right? So what is, what's John telling us here? Because there's a warrant out for his arrest and because his hour has come, therefore, Jesus goes to what? Bethany. Wow. And just, just let that sink in. He's not running from it. He's not withdrawing. He's not hiding from it. He knows his hour has come. Six days from now, Jesus knows he's going to the cross. He knows what that means for him. Can you imagine the struggle in his mind and his heart? But yet he, he goes. He goes to Bethany. He runs into this hornet's nest. He runs into this danger. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany. So verse 1, we have what? Jesus. We have Lazarus. We have Mary and Martha and the disciples. Jesus has returned in verse 2. And what do they do? They give him a, a dinner. Right, this is on the heels of Jesus doing this incredible, most unbelievable miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus comes back. And we don't necessarily know where it was. It's Potentially it could be Mary and Martha's home. More than likely it was, but we don't, we don't know. And they hear of Jesus coming and they obviously welcome him into their midst. And this was a sign of honor that they are ascribing unto Jesus by welcoming them into his home and preparing a, a dinner for him. So, so here's the context that we've got. So the first point we're going to look at this morning is simple. We want to contrast the two buckets of responses. We have Mary and Martha that are responding to Jesus rightly. And then we have this wild card response out of nowhere from Judas that is in stark contrast. And so that's really what we want to expose this morning is just these two responses. Remember, the title of this message this morning is A Tale of Two Responses. So the first point this morning, Mary and Martha demonstrate that they value Jesus through their unique displays of affection. Mary and Martha demonstrate that they value Jesus through their unique displays of affection. The core theme of this text is value. It's, it's worth. It's seeing the response Mary and Martha have, that they, they, they leave nothing on the table and opening up their homes and their lives, and they respond to Jesus rightly as Savior and Lord. Why? Because they understand who He is. And ultimately, they have this personal experience of what He has done for them on their behalf. And they're responding rightly. And then we have this lack of response by Judas. We see G Judas not valuing Jesus rightly, and as a result, he has some poor responses that we'll, 
that we'll note. So Mary and Martha demonstrate they value Jesus through the unique displays of affection. First, we see that Martha simply did what? She served. Right? Martha simply served. So verse 2, so they gave a dinner for him there. Two words, Martha served. This is all we get of Martha in this passage. Martha served. I, I find that unique and I find it interesting, but it's, it's easy for us to think that it's insignificant and move on to what? The, the, right, the, the star of the show, right, Mary, and rolling out this expensive ointment. But don't forget, Martha did what? She served. Are you thank, thankful for Martha's in your life that serve? I mean, think about this. Jesus is coming. They prepare a meal. Somebody's got to set this tone and atmosphere of hospitality. Somebody's got to prepare the home. Somebody's got to prepare the meal. So Martha did what? She served. Let's pause for a moment and not be quick to overlook Martha in the story. She served a dinner. This was her way of expressing the worth and value of Jesus that she knew to be absolutely true. She was there. She saw Jesus, or Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. I tried to combine Jesus and Lazarus there. That was interesting. She, she was there. She saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. She's got this very personal and intimate experience and testimony of her own. So Jesus has come back, and what's her gift? What's her personality? What does she have to offer to Jesus? She served. And I don't know about you. I may be reading too much into this. And Andy and Dave, you can keep me honest on this later if, if you need to correct me. But I think there's something here for us to consider about gifts, and about serving. Have you ever looked at somebody else and said, man, if I just was like them, I could really do something for Jesus? If I had that personality, if I had that gift, man, I, I, could, I could really get serious about following Jesus. Have you ever had kind of this woe is me moment about your gift or about your personality or about how God has made you? Apparently it's just me. All right, I've, I've been there, okay? Have you ever wanted to be, nobody wants to be the nose, but have you ever wanted to be the ear instead of the nose? Have you ever wanted to be the eyeball instead of the mouth? We always kind of look at others and we say, man, you know what? If I was just them or if I had what they had, I could really make a splash for the glory of God. But ultimately, Martha's here and she does what? She served. And it's beautiful. It's appropriate. Maybe it's practical, but it's good. She served. Right? It's two words. Maybe I'm making too much of it, but I've been there. And, and as I read this, that's something that the Spirit stirred up in me. It was, man, what about gifts? What does it look like for us today to consider Martha served? This is a timeless struggle of expressing worship with our own gifts and not someone else's. This was true then, and it's certainly true even today. We know it was true in the Corinthian church. Paul devoted chapters on this. Right? I'm saying don't be in competition with your gifts. Don't want this gift over that gift, but pursue the greatest of gifts, love. Not everybody can be the skilled worship leader. 
Not everybody can have the glorious soprano voice, Sarah. Not everyone can be skilled on the piano, Angela. Or skilled on the guitar, Andy. Notice I didn't say the drum. We're still working on that skill. So give, give me some time. All right, we're not, we don't all have these tangible gifts that we, that we put on display, but, but what can we do? We can bake a pie. We can cook a casserole. You don't want that for me, right? Or we can watch the kids so a young mother can actually grab a quick 30-minute nap. Guys, we can mow a lawn. We can rake some leaves. We can send a card. We can make a visit for just stopping by for a word of prayer. The list goes on and on about the ways that we can live out the Martha served. But we don't, we don't want to be the Martha. We don't want to be the two words in a very beautiful passage of worship. Lest we forget Matthew 25, 35 through 40. Christ says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You think the Martha served is insignificant? Christ doesn't. See, Martha surely picked up the towel and she served. She prepared a table. She made a meal. She did what she could to welcome Jesus into her home. Secondly, we see Mary. Verse number three, what did she do? She anointed Jesus' feet. Let's read verse three. It says this, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with the with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So what does she do? She takes this pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. The word for a pound here is a litra, which is about 12 ounces in our measurement. So roughly, what do we got? We got a, about the amount of a can of Coke, right? So you got that visual there. She's got this, this jar of incredibly valuable, expensive ointment. John helps us a bit in placing a price tag on the ointment through Judas's poor response. Before we dive into Judas, I'll just make note that we only get a glimpse to the price tag of this ointment through Judas. Mary and others make no mention of the apparent wasted value of the ointment. Just a side note there, right? No one else had a problem with this. No one else threw up the red flag. So Mary knows the value that this ointment holds, but she responds rightly. So what do we see? We see uh, down in verse uh, five, right? 
Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Right, so 300 denarii. What is that? One denarius is a Roman silver coin and is roughly the equivalent of one day's wage. One day's wage. So we've got nearly a full year's worth of wages wrapped up in this ointment that Mary takes to Jesus' feet and anoints his feet and wipes his feet with her hair. So let's quantify that a little bit, right? So the average household income in today's American dollars is what? Roughly, what, $40,000, $50,000 average? That's an annual average household income. $40,000 or $50,000 worth of a resource that she willingly puts at Jesus' feet and anoints them with. This was a big deal. This was no cheap anointing. This cost Mary something dearly. This likely represented some life savings of the family or, or herself. or uh, We don't really know how she came into the means to be able to purchase this amount of of, of ointment, but she has it and she's willing to use it to respond and recognize Jesus rightly as Savior and Lord. So she recognized that Jesus in his life as having immeasurable value and worth. And as such, Mary simply expressed her heart's cry in the best and most authentic way she could. She reached for this extremely valuable resource and she simply offered it to her Savior as an expression of worth, value, even gratitude and thankfulness for who Jesus was and what he had done on their behalf. Remember, Jesus spoke. Lazarus rose from the dead. He took their despair and gave Mary and Martha and others hope. He took their sorrow and gave them joy. He took their tears and replaced them with laughter. This is the context of Mary's response. The question is this. Can we place a price tag on what Jesus is worth to us? Is there any price tag that we could put on, okay, you know what? I'll follow Jesus. I'll be a part of this little thing that we've got going on unless it costs me X. Because ultimately, that's the transition that we'll see here shortly. Is there somehow an earthly limitation to the value that can be ascribed to the name of Jesus? And friends, let me answer that question. There is no limitation to the value and worth that we can ascribe to the name of Jesus. Do we remember Revelation 5, verses 9 through 14? And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, and for every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This, friends, is the worth, the value, the praise and worship that is due to the one that they call Jesus, for he is worthy. Amen? He's worthy. This is who Jesus is. And in Martha and in Mary's own individual unique way, they respond to Jesus acknowledging these truths. Should not this beautiful expression from Mary towards a loving Messiah cause us to consider how we are responding to the goodness of God in our life? Consider this. Mary put it all on the table. It was everything she likely had. I can't help as I consider that type of train of thought, I can't help but think of Romans 12, 1 and 2 in light of this passage. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. If Jesus, friends, truly is worthy, why do I continue to offer Jesus the leftovers of my heart? Consider that. If Jesus, if that passage in Revelations 5, 9 through 14, if that truly is fact, that he is worthy to receive all of that honor and wisdom and might, then why do I continue to offer Jesus the leftovers of my heart? Why do I persist on bringing cheap and flippant worship to the altar week after week? Consider this. I, I come into worship. Have I even thought about Jesus? Have I even thought about the gospel? Have I even thought about what he's provided for me through his shed blood? Have I thought and considered the goodness of God in my life in providing basic essentials of a roof over my head, clothes on my back, and food in my belly? Have I come confessing sin before God and ready to worship with a full heart? Have I come considering Him as creator of the universe and Savior and Lord of my life? If He's really worthy, if he really is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, why do I continue to offer cheap and flippant worship week after week? Friends, remember this. Because, again, the big idea, because Jesus is the resurrection and the life, his life and ministry have a measurable value and worth, and as such, he alone is worthy of our greatest and most lavish affections and worship. So quickly, Jesus, so Mary and Martha demonstrated that they valued Jesus through their unique displays of affection in verses one through three in context, or excuse me, in contrast. Let's observe quickly Judas in verse number four. 
Look at me in verse four. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Wow. So what do we see in verse four in contrast to Mary and Martha? Judas demonstrates that he does not value Jesus and reveals the true character of his heart. Judas demonstrates that he does not value Jesus and reveals the true character of his heart. We see in Judas's response that he values ultimately what material possessions over true and authentic worship of Jesus. We see that in verses five and six. There's this beautiful response coming from Jesus though. So Jesus doesn't just let Judas get off with this statement. Jesus responds to this inappropriate and disrespectful display that has just come out of Judas's mouth. Right? What does he say in verse 7? Leave her alone. I love it. I got fired up on that one. Jesus comes to Mary's aid and gives Judas this proverbial smack over the backside of the head and says, leave her alone. He goes on to elaborate on why Judas should leave her alone. We see three purposes or reasons why Jesus admonishes Judas to leave her alone. First, he says, leave her alone. Why? Verse seven, so she may keep it for the day of my burial. What was Jesus alluding to here? This speaks once again to Jesus trying to bring his followers into the full reality that his mission will lead to a cross. He acknowledges and appreciates the appropriateness of Mary's affection, but he knows following him will also bring difficult times in the days ahead, right? We remember chapter 11. Do we remember Mary's response to losing Lazarus? Jesus knows that she's about to, about to have difficult times in the days ahead. There's going to be emotional challenges, spiritual warfare that is going to come. And he wants to bring to the light that Judas needs to leave her alone. Why? So that she could take some of this ointment that ultimately she can use at his burial. It's a reality check. It's a gut check once again for all those who are in earshot of Jesus that he's on a mission. Leave her alone. Secondly, why? For the poor you always have with you. Verse eight. This alludes back to verse number six, right? With John's insight about the greediness and exploitation of the poor at the hands of Judas. Simply put, Judas loves money, not Jesus. It's very explicit in this passage. Judas Loves money, not Jesus. Remember, it was at his hands for a mere bag of money, 30 pieces of silver, again, money, that Judas will give over Jesus to the authorities. This is a theme. In Judas' life, this is a well-worn path that has caused Judas to go astray. Friends, let me ask you this question. Do you love your money? I don't mean do you have money in the bank. There's nothing wrong with that, right? It's a necessary evil you'll hear us say in our day and age, right? We've got to live. We work 
for a wage. We earn money. I didn't ask, do you have money? I said, do you love your money? Do you love it? Do you ache for more of it? Are you held captive by it? Are your decisions influenced by it? Judas was. He was gripped by the evil love of money. Friends, this is a sobering sidebar conversation in this passage. What money can do in our lives. We're reminded in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds, plural, of evils, plural. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is what the love of money will do. And so the friends, the question in this passage of application is, do you love money like Judas loved money? Or do you understand that everything I have, even my money and resources and time, it's all given to me by God. I, I hold it with an open hand. He gives and takes away, but regardless, I trust. Judas was gripped by this love of money. So Jesus tells Judas, leave her alone. The poor he will always have to be able to exploit as, they, as he dips his hands into the coffers and takes for his own. Leave her alone. Thirdly, why? You do not always have me. In verse number eight, you do not always have me. It speaks to the reality that his hours come. Their time together is short. What should be this sweet time of fellowship and remembering and worship and praise and reflecting on the testimony of what Jesus has done on their behalf in raising Lazarus who is dining in their midst. He's alive. <laughs> He's living. He's breathing. He's dying. He's partaking of bread and Lazarus is here and they should be celebrating this and looking to Jesus in worship and honor and praise. Instead, what is Judas's response? He's worried about the waste of an expensive ointment because it represents money that's not in his pocket but is wasted on his perceived unworthy Savior. On his feet, just wasted. On the feet of Jesus. This is Judas. So with this in mind, Jesus tells Judas, leave her alone. What is Jesus really doing in this response to Judas? Jesus is seeking to quiet any other voice that would detract from Mary and Martha's displays of affection, value, worth, and worship. It is the voice of Judas that will dismiss Jesus as a failure. It is the voice of Judas that will follow not only uh, only, excuse me, that will follow only when it is comfortable or convenient. It is the voice of Judas that will follow only when it's popular. It's the voice of Judas that ultimately took his own life. It is this suicidal, self-serving 
proud, arrogant voice that will ultimately damn millions upon millions of souls for all eternity in a real place called hell. Friends, that's not a popular message. But that is the truth of what life looks like without recognizing and responding to Jesus rightly as Savior and Lord. So why why will millions and millions of souls be damned to a place called hell for all eternity? Why? Because they looked at Jesus and said this. He's not worth that much. Ultimately, the whisper of their heart and rejection of Jesus as they've looked at the offer of Jesus is this, that Jesus is not worthy. He's not, he's not worth that much. Certainly, he's not worth giving my life for. It's like the rich young ruler in Mark 10. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Everybody wants to know the answer to that question. Give me a sugar stick on that one, Jesus. I want to know the answer to that. How do I inherit eternal life? What is Jesus' response? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Get that? Loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. This was the invitation of Jesus to this rich young ruler in Mark 10. What was the rich young ruler's response? Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great, great possessions. See, friends, at the end of the day, following Jesus will always cost us in the end. For Lazarus, the end of our passage here, verses 9, 10, and 11, for Lazarus, it, it's going to mean his life. I mean, it's bad enough to die once, but now, now I'm going to be murdered. The plot that was supposed to be for killing Jesus is now morphed over into the camp of Lazarus, and his life is now at stake. For Lazarus, it meant this evil plot and this tension, these crowds, the Sanhedrin plotting to kill Jesus, that it's, it's coming his way. Friends, allowing God to work in and through us and putting his work and power on display for all to see will never be in the popular opinion of society. I, I cannot stress that enough. Following Jesus, being a Christian, it is never going to be the popular opinion of society. I don't care if you're in the heart of the Middle East, which we know that's true, or in the good old United States of America. The ones that proclaim in God we trust. Friends, Christ is calling us to something much more than a slogan on our dollar bill.
He's calling us more to a bill of rights. He's calling us more to an earthly citizenship. He's calling us to what? Radical abandonment. Radical fellowship of everything that we have and everything that we are. The call to discipleship has not changed in all these years, thousands of years. It's still simple. But friends, it will still cost us everything. Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Friends, I think after looking at this passage and seeing the the right response of Mary and Martha, seeing the inappropriate and disrespectful and uh, depraved response of Judas, the question is this, what are we trusting in? When our religious freedoms are gone, what will be left? When the, moral, when the moral decline of society continues to clash with traditional conservative values, what will be left? When it's no longer popular, when the history of our nation of being a, a Christian nation is no longer a reality that we live today, what are we going to be trusting in? Are we still going to follow Jesus? Or are we going to throw in the towel like Judas? Just live for ourselves. Matthew 16, 25 says this. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, the call today is to remember. To remember what? To remember that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. To remember this, that his life and his ministry have a measurable value and worth, and as such, he alone is worthy of our greatest and most lavish affections and worship. Do we believe that to be true? Has the character of who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf has truly gripped our lives, and as a result, are we responding to Jesus rightly as Savior and Lord? These things are written so that we would believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And that by believing, we would have life in his name. A tale of two responses, Mary and Martha and the disappointing response of Judas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your love, for your grace and your mercy, for giving us the ability to know Jesus for giving us the ability by your spirit and your grace to be made right to you, the Father, through Jesus' death on the cross. I thank you for drawing us to yourself, for breathing in our dead corpse new life, for breaking the chains to the bondage of sin that we can never do, for adopting us into your family that we had no rights to. But in the process of doing that, You have made us heirs, sons and daughters, given us an inheritance. Father, as we've seen these responses this morning, I pray that our hearts will be challenged to how we're responding to you today, right now. We're responding to the truth of who you are in in our culture, in our context. And that you would show us areas of our life that could be changed so we could be more like you. Father, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.